This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has issued a message to Canadian snowbirds. Don't travel outside the country while the pandemic rages on in the southern U.S. The Prime Minister also cautioned that anyone who does go south better make sure they have good travel insurance that covers COVID-19. Last spring, thousands of Canadians came back early when they realized they would not be covered. Now, there are insurance options available. But insurance may not be the only obstacle. Many snowbirds normally drive to Florida, an option which is not available right now since the border is closed to land travel for all but essential reasons. And then there's the overriding concern of safety, since many Americans do not embrace mask wearing and social distancing the way we do in Canada. Libby Snymer was joined to discuss this year's Snowbird Dilemma by David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging, Martin Firestone, President of Travel Secure, and Penny Brown, a Canadian snowbird who is considering a trip to Florida this year. We, we get up every day. And the first thing we do is turn on the COVID numbers in Florida. I have many, I'm totally, totally trying to figure it out. Many friends who are going and they're, they're going by private jet where they're one of eight people going down, hopefully to avoid the airports, which personally I don't think are the real problem. There's uh, Air Canada, which now has a 56 capacity passenger going down to Florida, which is pretty reasonable. On the on again to to avoid the crowds at the airports, it seems to be that the problem is not only what's happening in Florida, but how to get there in 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 terms of safety. Um, I think most of us today ship our cars down as opposed to drive them down. At least in the friends that I have, so it's not it's not an, an a huge expense to do so. And in in those cars go all the stuff, all the clothes, all the the things that we take with us. the The real concern, obviously, is as you know, most Floridians. I'm just looking at pictures sent to me from friends already down there at um, a Porsche Club meeting. Are sitting side by side at a table outdoors, and I can't see one mask. Let's bring in uh, Martin Firestone. So uh, last spring, people came back in droves because they realized they weren't covered. But now there are options that will cover people if they get COVID. There are. There's every insurer has basically come to the table in one format or another, either embedded in the contract as COVID insurance or Various insurers have added riders with limited caps on them to send people away. But having said that, I, even in sales, uh, have an issue at this point with my clients or customers traveling. 
The problem is, as we watch cases rise, as we watch hospitals overflowing and limited ICU beds, I truly worry at this point if one were to come down with COVID or symptoms of COVID and headed to a U.S. hospital, I'm worried about where our Canadians would stand in line there if the hospital was booked and had no uh, additional rooms. I'm worried about whether they would be able to be flown back by air ambulance and would there be an available bed in Ontario. All those things come into play. So when asked, I say, as long as there's a travel advisory in place, which there is, as long as a vaccine has not been distributed widely, which it hasn't, I have tremendous concerns in general about leaving our wonderful province. David, you have hot off the press a uh, travel survey of CARP members, and there are a lot of snowbirds among CARP members. So what are they saying? The results were interesting. About a quarter of the people came back because of COVID. They were stuck down there. That was about 50-50, those on holiday, and 50-50 snowbirds. So back they come. Three quarters of them, therefore, canceled bookings. They were in the middle of researching and blah, you know, all their things stopped. But the big question is, what are they going to do next? And in this survey, uh, only uh, under 10% of the people, whether it's for snowboarding or vacations, said they expect to be able to go back south this winter, just under 9%. The rest of them don't expect to travel south. And it's about a third, a third, a third. About a third say, we don't think we can travel till next spring or summer, which is not that far off. Another third say, I don't think I can travel till this time next year. So it's like a year away. And then about another third say, I don't think I can travel till 2022. Like I'm writing off all of 2021. So you've got about a third, a third, a third who really, per what Martin said, are actually sounding much more conservative about doing this. And only uh, under 10% think that, yeah, I'll be able to somehow get down there during the winter. So it's, it's they're very conservative about their plans. David Kravitz, VP at Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer of CARP, A New Vision of Aging. Martin Firestone, President of Travel Secure. And Penny Brown, a Canadian snowbird who normally travels to Florida. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Now to some good news around this year's flu season. As of early this past week, there were only 17 confirmed cases of the flu across the country. At the same time last year, there were 711 confirmed cases nationwide. Doctors are attributing this year's staggering low numbers to mask wearing, social distancing and hand washing practices that we've embraced because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Libby was joined on Tuesday by Dr. Gerald Evans, chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University. This is uh, actually good news, and it looks like it it is uh, at least at this very, very early part of the flu season, which starts typically at the beginning of October, uh, that our numbers are down at uh, really what may be historical lows. And that's mirroring what we were seeing uh, from the data that came out of the Southern Hemisphere flu season, which ran from uh, June through September. And what is your advice to people? Just uh, keep, keep up with the hand washing and all of that? Yeah, I don't think there's any question that that I I really do believe that the impact of reducing flu that we saw massively in the southern hemisphere was due to COVID-19 
precautions that we're taking, the hand washing, the masking, uh, the maintaining physical distancing, all of those things are going to reduce the likelihood of transmission of a respiratory droplet spread infection like influenza, which also happens to be the primary mode by which COVID-19 spreads as well. Uh huh. And do you foresee these things becoming usual? I mean, I know that uh, I have totally changed my habits in terms of just touching other people on the occasions when I actually see them. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I think may sort of be an offshoot of this, again, again, one of those little silver linings from this otherwise terrible black cloud of, of the pandemic, is that people may recognize that those types of habits that we've now learned uh, to prevent the transmission of COVID-19 do and can have an impact on other respiratory viruses. So perhaps in years to come, uh, people will continue to you know, practice some of those things and in that sense be able to reduce the risk that they might get um, a virus like influenza. And it's important to remember that influenza is a, a serious virus. It causes a very bad disease. It can kill people. Uh, and it affects children as well as older adults and, and adults in their normal healthy years. So we, we should have a lot of respect for influenza and anything we can do to reduce its transmission is going to be hugely beneficial. Part and parcel of all these recommendations uh, about um, ensuring that you don't transmit the viruses, we've been strongly encouraging people to get their flu shot. And as you pointed out at the beginning, you, you know, there has been a huge uptake in people getting the flu shot. And that is incredibly important because we need to keep people healthy, not getting the flu, because some people, when they get the flu, get very ill, have to come into hospital and may need ICU care at the same time that we're trying to you know, control COVID-19 and prevent those exact same things. So it's important to try and not allow these two infections to both exist at the same time in parallel uh, because they're really going to tax the healthcare system. There is a big uptake, but there's also uh, a shortage of some of the vaccines. And what do you tell people who, uh, you know, can't get a shot? Well, first of all, I would suggest to people that if you're over 65 and, and, you know, we know the high-dose shots should be reserved for people over that age, if there aren't any more high-dose shots, there's nothing wrong with getting the regular dose shot. It's also going to protect you. We just know comparatively maybe high-dose is better. So get your flu shot even if you can't get the high-dose one and you're over age 65. Secondly, it's very interesting that it's patchy. And even here in Kingston, whereas some outlets like pharmacies and other places say they don't have uh, vaccine. Some places do. And so we have been trying to sort of work through word of mouth as well as with public health to identify those places that still have uh, flu shots available. It's important to remember that we uh, pre-order a uh, flu vaccine each year. And there was um, a pre-order that went in that was a certain degree higher than it was in previous years. 20%. In anticipation that we needed to get a lot of people vaccinated. And it's unfortunate in a weird way that, that even though there was an increase in how much was ordered, the demand for it is so much higher than that, that it'll tell us in future years, maybe we have to go even higher with our flu shot request. Okay, Dr. Evans, what would you like to leave us with? Just lots of encouraging news about the fact that uh, flu is low this year, uh, the COVID vaccine's coming. And again, if you haven't had your flu shot this year, go out and get it. It's all going to be part of our strategy to reduce influenza. Dr. Gerald Evans, Chair of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Queen's University. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Coming up after the break, food bank use continues to become more common as the pandemic rages on. 
You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. As the pandemic continues, more people are relying on food banks to get by. And the number of new users keeps climbing, according to a new report. Use in June, for instance, was up 22% over the same month last year. By August, the percentage had grown to 51%. The same survey found two-thirds of respondents admitted to skipping a meal to pay for other necessities like rent, transportation, or phone and internet bills. And when they finish paying for these necessities, many food bank users are left with just $8 a day. Libby Snymer was joined on Tuesday by Neil Hetherington, CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank. What surprised me was the uh, the rise of, uh, of child hunger um, that we've seen, uh, particularly since the pandemic. We had 110,000 client visits in a single month. We've never had anywhere close to that, 110,000. I mean, it's, it's double the size of Barry uh, in terms of, of uh, usage. So, um, so we're obviously very concerned about the numbers and, um, and obviously the people behind the numbers, um, the individuals who uh, have to make that, uh, that decision to, uh, uh, to, to make ends meet by coming to a food bank. Is there any change in the demographics? I'm wondering, you know, we keep hearing about people losing their businesses, not being able to hang on. Uh, Have you seen more people who are in that position, business owners who've lost their business or people who've uh, lost their jobs? Yes. Uh, you know, we are seeing a lot of new faces. There has been a 200% increase in the number of new clients uh, come, coming to food banks. Um, and I know that, you know, visiting uh, one of our food banks and walking uh, walking the line up and, and, and uh, seeing individuals, there was a, a friend of mine from that I hadn't seen for quite some time, uh, for, for about, a, you know, a, a five, ten years. Um, and he was he was in line and he was getting food for his family five. I had no idea that he was in a difficult uh, situation from an income perspective. And, um, you know, we had a, a good conversation about what had happened. He was uh, laid off and needs to do what he needs to do. And he was putting his family first. And uh, and he's emblematic of, of a whole host of things that are going on. You know, when we talk about COVID and uh, and, and the working poor, um, the map of who is contracting COVID overlays almost perfectly with food bank usage in the city um, in terms of what are the, the areas of population uh, that, are, that are at higher risk. And so uh, um, we know that uh, individuals who are experiencing poverty are having to go on public transportation. They're not able to work from home. They are uh, individuals who uh, are often personal support workers who uh, need to, to be at their position every single day. And that puts them at higher risk. And, uh, and so, um, we are, uh, we're keenly interested in the recommendations of this report. I'd encourage everybody, you know, often I, I, I make an appeal for food or funds. Today, I, I am making an appeal that people read this report by Talia Bronstein. She wrote an incredible report here with detailed recommendations on how all of us 
can advocate for systemic change. Um, there are a whole host of individuals. When you talked about sort of the changing demographic of people who are coming to food banks, it's individuals who statistically may have been employed, but they were employed by put, cobbling together two or three part-time jobs with no benefits. And so it's those individuals in situations of precarious employment that we think there can be uh, solid uh, pathways forward through decent uh, policies that not only uh, supports the individuals, but supports our economy. You also said something about how long you think it will take uh, for people to get over this food insecurity. Yeah, you know, I the, the, the report... Um, you know, if if, if uh, passed as prologue, then we know that in 2008 and nine, the peak usage of food banks was was actually uh, about two and a half, three years after um, the, uh, the the financial meltdown. And so our numbers continue to increase, and I'm fearful that they'll continue to increase for that same amount of time, unless we take that hopeful route, that hopeful route of looking at those recommendations and saying, you know, we've gone through this experience together. Is there any way we can learn from it and start to have uh, uh, healthy conversations about what is the best way forward that protects the population, that ensures decent social policies, as well as uh, economic fuel. Neil Hetherington, CEO of the Daily Bread Food Bank. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Long-term care continues to be a hot topic of interest on Fight Back. But we took some time on Thursday to talk about home care as we age. Still an essential service and still happening, but with many additional changes because of COVID-19. Dr. Vipin Nikor is Chief Executive Officer at Home Care Hub and Chief Medical Director at TD Bank Group. And he's come up with a new model for delivering home care. It's called Share Care. And he joined Libby to discuss and take your calls. So Home Care Hub is something we came up with a few uh, years ago, myself and a few other colleagues. And there's a few different parts of our mission, and that's to improve the quality of care and as well to bring down uh, the cost of care and tackle social isolation. So we created a, a home care marketplace, which is sort of like an Expedia for home care, which was our initial offering where we we work currently with around 35 different home care agencies and patients and uh, other customers can look online in a, in a sort of easy-to-view fashion where we have transparent pricing, et cetera. And then the second part is exactly what you had mentioned, share care, where we use those agencies and the power of our network and as well our sort of expertise and technology and generally delivering uh, medical in home care. And what we're doing is we're using, I would say, technology, but not necessarily technology, where we bring people in the same neighborhood uh, together who have similar needs and interests where they can live with each other as an alternative to home care. And we have variations of the model where they come together and we develop adult day programs such as in churches and community centers and other uh, areas that could be in even somebody's house. And they may have, you know, eight to five programming uh, and be able to leave after the day. And there's currently a shortage in both long-term care and retirement homes and uh, adult day programs. So we're hoping to to solve for that crisis. And in the end, it's a, a more cost-effective and we believe uh, 
a very safe model for seniors to come together. Let's say uh, you are at home with a spouse who needs a lot of care. Sure. And, you know, you need somebody to come in and do all of those things, uh, you know, to help bathe them and settle them in bed and, and all of that. And the way things work right now, you get a, a, an inadequate number of hours that, that the province provides. Uh, and right now, your, your option would be to supplement that and pay for it out of pocket, which, as you said, is very expensive. Uh, it's, um, I don't know what the average is now. The last time I looked, it was about 25 bucks an hour. Correct, correct. So uh, how would your model help somebody in that situation? Yeah, it's a great point. So a couple of things I'd mention is our sort of, you know, day program or, or live out model uh, where we bring people on a, uh, where they, they drop, you know, maybe they drop their parents off in the morning and they, they pick them up later in the day. You know, that option won't be for everyone. You know, I, I practice acute medicine. I'm actually at the hospital right now. And a lot of the patients I discharge, they are too acute to be able to, to be mobile, go somewhere else. Uh, the live-in option may be a good option for that person where they actually live with three, four other people as an alternative to a, a long-term care or retirement home, or they could potentially be a host. So if there's space in their home and they're willing to host the day program, that we accept hosts who live somewhere so they don't have to actually travel, and then four or five other people, neighbors potentially, uh, could come and uh, have the programming held at their house. It's a very interesting concept. Dr. Nakor, what would you like to leave us with? You know, we hope people will consider this model uh, of care. And if people want to participate as a host or even as a participant in our, our, our new model of care, we would love to hear that. We hear from them if it's a day program or evening overnight program. And anyone who needs, of course, regular home care uh, as well through our marketplace, we've been able to help a lot of different people. Uh, in our phone number, one triple eight two two seven three zero eight zero, and uh, we can always be reached at info at homecarehub.com uh, as well. Dr. Vipin Nakor, Chief Executive Officer at Home Care Hub and Chief Medical Director at TD Bank Group. That contact information again by phone at one eight 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 two two seven. 3080 or by email at info at homecarehub.com. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Coming up, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's best calls. Kim in Mississauga phoned about a postponed date with international travel. We were planning on having a cruise next uh, next March and it was already booked. Uh, we were notified, uh, in August that it was being canceled and it was being put over and, uh, we're leaving now on February the 28th in 2022. Hopefully, uh, it will go then and, uh, 
we'll be fine. But uh, we were very, very concerned about uh, it going off uh, in uh, next year. So uh, we were thinking of cancelling it at that time. Pat in Toronto phoned about traveling to the U.S. during the pandemic. What happens if you get COVID when you're down there? You know, I've had experience with people, for instance, who've had a broken hip. And while it'd be nice to fly back to Canada, you can't automatically get into a hospital here. And and so I don't think anybody is going to... Well, I would be reluctant as a pilot to be flying somebody back with COVID. So they're going to have to get service down in... Uh, the states where they're at critical uh, stage right now. So uh, insurance, as, as your guest is saying, may not save you. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Barry in North York, who phoned with some timely advice for all of us. I go every year to visit my family in London at Christmas, um, and there's no way I'm taking a bus going up there. They realize that, and they're willing to come down and pick me up. But I was just talking to a friend the other day and said, well, the cases going up in Ontario is just ridiculous. So I'm even thinking of saying, no, I'm sorry. I, I, we'll do a Zoom Christmas. I just, I just don't feel right, even though London doesn't have a lot of cases, but don't need one to get it. And I'd like to be around for other Christmases. And we can do this. We can sacrifice now in order so that we can celebrate properly and everybody will be around to celebrate properly next year. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fightback voicemail at 416-367-9636. 416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join us again next weekend when we'll round up the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.